Let me tell you a story, podcast number 82. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a truth how long we You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Guys, 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 we both know you've been wanting to make your man cave, but we're scared to death to do it. Well now, thanks to Brave Cave, you can choose the largest space you want and fill it with a huge flat screen TV, recliners, and a fridge. Not to mention the other necessary indulgences. This complete package comes for an introductory price of just $50,000 and comes ready to install. Order yours today. Offer void where taxed or prohibited by wife and cancels your injury insurance policy. Hi, this is Becky. Along with excerpts from Winds of Wyoming and Treasure Island, we have an Oscar Wilde short story for you today. Some kid chuckles and a poem Steve and I wrote together many moons ago. We remember that that poem was written for some kind of group project at church. However, we just can't quite remember what that project might have been. Anyway, we found it in our files, and Steve will share it with you later. Right now, I'll begin by reading a section from Chapter 25 in Winds of Wyoming. Still seated in her wheelchair, Kate watched Dimple lock the front door and then close and lock the patio door. I'm surprised, Dimple. You rarely close that door, let alone lock it. I meant to shut it before I went looking for you. Dimple pulled the blinds across the glass. Would you care to have a scone and a cup of chamomile tea with me before bed? The tea will warm you and help you sleep. She carried the teapot from the stove to the sink to fill with water. I would love hot tea. A shiver vibrated Kate's body. I should have taken a jacket. I'll get you a quilt, Dimple said, and she set the teapot on the stove and turned on the burner. It's not good for you to be chilled so soon after surgery. Kate let Dimple wrap her in a heavy cotton comforter and settle her into the recliner with a pillow behind her head. She smiled. No one had mothered her in such a loving manner since her parents' death so many years ago. She'd once thought she wanted Laura Duncan for a mom, or a mom-in-law. But Dimple was a mom and a grandma, all wrapped into one kind, generous woman. You're spoiling me again, Dimple. My pleasure. Dimple tucked the quilt around her legs. Kate snuggled into the heavy blanket. Between the warmth and the mellow smell of the chamomile, maybe she could forget her problems and have a nice talk with Dimple. If she didn't fall asleep first. Dimple set a small plate with a lemon scone on it beside Kate and poured them each a cup of tea before she sat on the couch. Kate sipped the tea, appreciating its comforting heat. This is wonderful. It has the perfect amount of honey. My Aunt Mary is very particular. 
she stopped, surprised by Dimple's expression. What? Dimple put her cup down. I had a strange phone call tonight. Her serious tones sent a different kind of chill through Kate. From someone I know? Evidently. Kate set her cup on the saucer Dimple had provided. It was a man who asked, or rather demanded, Dimple said, to speak to you. He didn't believe me when I said you weren't here. Ramsey. Kate's jaw clamped so tight she could barely speak. Did he say his name? No. He said to tell you he'd find you and that he'd make you pay for ruining his life. That's the reason I locked the patio door. Kate groaned. Would she never escape Ramsey, never escape her past? That's why I can't stay at your house, Dimple. I don't want him to hurt you. Is he the person you told me about earlier? Kate nodded. Is he the reason I found a knife in your bedding? Kate tilted her head. I don't understand. When I packed your things at the Whispering Pines, I stripped the bed, and a big butcher knife fell out. Do you know how it got there? Um, Kate hesitated. I put it there. That's all you have to say? Dimple stared into her soul the way she had the first time they met. You put it there? What more is there to say? You must have had a reason. Dimple's wrinkles nodded on the bridge above her nose. A reason for keeping such a big knife under your pillow. My first night at the Whispering Pines, someone broke into my cabin, but Mike chased him away. I'm certain the man who called you is the same person. Kate gripped the chair arms. I had a feeling he'd return, so I put a knife under my pillow. Before the butcher knife, she'd used Uncle Dean's hunting knife. Where was it now? Did Ramsey have it? Had he called from jail? Or was he out? Her life was filled with questions. Endless questions. That's a hint of a reason. Dimple lifted her cup again. Kate, your life is in danger, and apparently mine too. It's okay to have secrets, but there are times when you need to reach out to enlist the help of others. The Lone Ranger had tonsillitis, you know. Kate snorted and sprayed tea on the quilt. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. She dabbed at the cotton cover with a napkin Dimple had given her. I hope I didn't ruin it. Don't worry about that old thing. It'll be fine. Dimple's eyebrows clustered. What did I say this time? You said the Lone Ranger had tonsillitis. Dimple huffed. I meant to say Tonto. I thought so. Kate nibbled at the scone. Perhaps it was time to bear her soul. She hated to dump her garbage on anyone, but Dimple, like Mike, wanted an explanation for her secrecy. Okay, Tonto, here goes. She put the scone down and took a long breath. Kate told Dimple everything. Ramsey's full name, how and where they met, the incidents at the Whispering Pines. She talked about foster parents who used her to get money from the state and abused her in every imaginable manner. She told how she ran off again and again about life on the streets, about selling her body, and about her years behind bars. She explained that another conviction could trigger a three-strike-sure-out sentence and result in a lifetime behind bars. Dimple listened intently, interrupting now and then to ask a question or offer more tea. 
When the clock on the fireplace mantel chimed midnight, Kate rubbed her eyes and yawned. That's it. That's all there is to say about my sordid history. She picked up her cup for a final sip, amazed by the lightness in her soul. Maybe it was because Dimple was such a compassionate listener. Dimple settled her cup on a saucer. I need to know more about this Jerry Ramsey person. There's not much I can add, except that he's a sick blend of crazy and evil. I don't understand why he's after you, Dimple said. Why he thinks you ruined his life. I'm ashamed to say, Kate stared at the ceiling, I traded Ramsey's sex for drugs and commissary items in prison. But after I found God, or God found me, I wanted Ramsey and dope out of my life. That didn't go over so good with him, to say the least. But then he was transferred to another unit, which was a relief, until I realized I was pregnant. When I started to show I'd been in prison long enough, it was obvious the father was a correctional officer. After a lot of pressure from the staff, I eventually told them Ramsey was the one who got me pregnant. I later heard he was fired. Is he violent? Dimple asked. He beat me up the day I... Kate wiggled her fingers to indicate quotation marks. Broke up with him. I regained consciousness in the infirmary and remained there for several days. Oh, you poor dear. I'm surprised you didn't lose the baby. At that point, said Kate, I didn't realize I was pregnant, so it wasn't a concern. What happened to the baby? Did you give him or her up for adoption? No, Kate shook her head. The prison doctor convinced me to abort the baby, something I now regret. She swirled leaf particles at the bottom of her teacup. If Ramsey's beating had killed the baby, then she could blame him, not herself. And now chapter 32 of Treasure Island, starting just a little before. We started, certainly, but in spite of the hot sun and the staring daylight, the pirates no longer ran separate and shouting through the wood, but kept side by side and spoke with bated breath. The terror of the dead buccaneer had fallen on their spirits. Chapter 32, The Treasure Hunt, The Voice Among the Trees. Partly from the damping influence of this alarm, partly to rest silver and the sick folk, the whole party sat down as soon as they had gained the brow of the ascent. The plateau being somewhat tilted towards the west, this spot on which we had paused commanded a wide prospect on either hand. Before us, over the treetops, we beheld the cape of the woods fringed with surf. Behind, we not only looked down upon the anchorage and skeleton island, but saw, clear across the spit and the eastern lowlands, a great field of open sea upon the east. Sheer above us rose the spyglass, here dotted with single pines, there black with precipices. There was no sound but that of the distant breakers, mounting from all around, and the chirp of countless insects in the brush. Not a man, not a sail upon the sea. The very largeness of the view increased the sense of solitude. Silver, as he sat, 
took certain bearings with his compass. There are three tall trees, said he, about in the right line from Skeleton Island. Spyglass shoulder, I take it, means that lower point there. It's child's play to find the stuff now. I've half a mind to dine first. I don't feel sharp, growled Morgan. Thinking of Flint, I think it were as done me. Ah, uh, well, my son, you praise your stars, he's dead, said Silver. And we're an ugly devil, cried a third pirate with a shudder. That blew in the face, too. That was how the rum took him, added Mary. Blue? Well, I reckon he was blue. That's a true word. Ever since they had found the skeleton and got upon this train of thought, they had spoken lower and lower, and they had almost got to whispering by now, so that the sound of their talk hardly interrupted the silence of the wood. All of a sudden, out of the middle of the trees in front of us, a thin, high, trembling voice struck up the well-known air in words. Fifteen men on the dead man's chest. Yo-ho-ho ho, and a bottle of rum. I never have seen men more dreadfully affected than the pirates. The color went from their six faces like enchantment. Some leapt to their feet. Some clawed hold of others. Morgan groveled on the ground. It's Flint by... cried Mary. The song had stopped as suddenly as it began. Broken off you would have said, in the middle of a note, as though someone had laid his hand upon the singer's mouth. Coming so far through the clear, sunny atmosphere among the green treetops, I thought it had sounded airily and sweetly, and the effect on my companions was the stranger. Come, said Silver, struggling with his ashen lips to get the word out. This won't do. Stand by to go about. This is a rum start, and I can't name the voice. But it's someone skylarking, someone that's flesh and blood, and you may lay to that. His courage had come back as he spoke, and some of the color to his face along with it. Already the others had begun to lend an ear to this encouragement, and were coming a little to themselves when the same voice broke out again, not this time singing, but in a faint, distant hail that echoed yet fainter among the clefts of the spyglass. Darby McGraw, it wailed, for that is the word that best describes the sound. Darby McGraw, Darby McGraw, again and again and again, and then rising a little higher, and with an oath that I leave out, fetch aft the rum, Darby the buccaneers remained rooted to the ground, their eyes starting from their heads. Long after the voice had died away, they still stared in silence, dreadfully, before them. That fixes it, gasped one. Let's go. They was his last words, moaned Morgan, his last words above board. Dick had his Bible out and was praying volubly, he had been well brought up, had Dick, before he came to sea and fell among bad companions. Still, Silver was unconquered. I could hear his teeth rattle in his head, but he had not yet surrendered. 
Nobody in this here island ever heard of Darby, he muttered. Not one but us that's here. And then, making a great effort, Shipmates, he cried, I'm here to get that stuff, and I'll not be beat by man nor devil. I never was feared of Flint in his life, and by the powers I'll face him dead. There's seven hundred thousand pound, not a quarter of a mile from here. When did ever a gentleman of fortune show his stern to that much dollars, for a boozy old seaman with a blue mug and him dead, too? But there was no sign of reawakening courage in his followers, rather, indeed, of growing terror at the irreverence of his words. Belay there, John, said Mary. Don't you cross a spirit? And the rest were all too terrified to reply. They would have run away severally had they dared, but fear kept them together and kept them close by John as if his daring helped them. He, on his part, had pretty well fought his weakness down. Spirit? Well, maybe, he said, but there's one thing not clear to me. There was an echo. Now, no man ever seen a spirit with a shadow. Well, then, what's he doing with an echo to him, I should like to know. That ain't in nature, surely. This argument seemed weak enough to me, but you can never tell what will affect the superstitious, and to my wonder, George Mary was greatly relieved. Well, that's so, he said. You've a head upon your shoulders, John, and no mistake. Bout ship, mates, this here crew is on a wrong tack, I do believe, and come to think of it, it was like Flint's voice, I grant you but not just so clear away like it, after all. It was liker somebody else's voice now. It was liker... By the powers, Ben Gunn, roared Silver. Aye, and so it were, cried Morgan, springing on his knees. Ben Gunn it were. It don't make much odds, do it now, asked Dick. Ben Gunn's not here in the body any more in Flint but the older hands greeted this remark with scorn. Why, nobody minds Ben Gunn, cried Mary. Dead or alive, nobody minds him. It was extraordinary how their spirits had returned and how the natural color had revived in their faces. Soon they were chatting together with intervals of listening, and not long after, hearing no further sound, they shouldered the tools and set forth again. Mary walking first with Silver's compass to keep them on the right line with Skeleton Island. He had said the truth. Dead or alive, nobody minded Ben Gunn. Dick alone still held his Bible and looked around him as he went with fearful glances. But he found no sympathy and Silver even joked him on his precautions. I told you, said he, I told you you had spoiled your Bible. If it ain't no good to swear by... What do you suppose a spirit would give for it? Not that. And he snapped his big fingers, halting a moment on his crutch. But Dick was not to be comforted. Indeed, it was soon plain to me that the lad was falling sick, hastened by heat, exhaustion, and the shock of his alarm. The fever, predicted by Dr. Livesey, was evidently growing swiftly higher. It was fine open walking here, Upon the summit, our way lay a little downhill, for, as I have said, the plateau tilted toward the west. The pines, great and small, grew wide apart, and even between the clumps of nutmeg and azalea, 
wide open spaces baked in the hot sunshine. Striking, as we did, pretty near northwest across the island, we drew, on the one hand, every nearer under the shoulders of the spyglass, and on the other, looked ever wider over that western bay where I had once tossed and trembled in the coracle. The first of the tall trees was reached, and by the bearing proved the wrong one. So with the second. The third rose nearly two hundred feet into the air above a clump of underwood, a giant of a vegetable, with a red column as big as a cottage and a wide shadow around in which a company could have maneuvered. It was conspicuous far to see both on the east and west, and might have been entered as a sailing mark upon the chart. But it was not its size that now impressed my companions. It was the knowledge that 700,000 pounds in gold lay somewhere buried below its spreading shadow. The thought of the money, as they drew nearer, swallowed up their previous terrors. Their eyes burned in their heads, their feet grew speedier and lighter. Their whole soul was bound up in that fortune, that whole lifetime of extravagance and pleasure that lay waiting there for each of them. Silver hobbled, grunting, on his crutch. His nostrils stood out and quivered. He cursed like a madman when the flies settled on his hot and shiny countenance. He plucked furiously at the line that held me to him, and from time to time turned his eyes upon me with a deadly look. Certainly he took no pains to hide his thoughts, and certainly I read them like print. In the immediate nearness of the gold, all else had been forgotten. His promise and the doctor's warning were both things of the past, and I could not doubt that he hoped to seize upon the treasure, find and board the Hispaniola under cover of night, cut every honest throat about that island, and sail away as he had at first intended, laden with crimes and riches. Shaken as I was with these alarms, it was hard for me to keep up with the rapid pace of the treasure hunters. Now and again I stumbled, and it was then that Silver plucked so roughly at the rope and launched at me his murderous glances. Dick, who had dropped behind us and now brought up the rear, was babbling to himself both prayers and curses as his fever kept rising. This also added to my wretchedness, and to crown all, I was haunted by the thought of the tragedy that had once been acted on that plateau. When that ungodly buccaneer with the blue face, he who died at Savannah, singing and shouting for drink, had there, with his own hand, cut down his six accomplices. This grove that was now so peaceful must then have rung with cries, I thought, and even with the thought, I could believe I heard it ringing still. We were now at the margin of the thicket, Huzza, mates, all together, shouted Mary, and the foremost broke into a run. And suddenly, not ten yards further, we beheld them stop. A low cry arose. Silver doubled his pace, digging away with the foot of his crutch like one possessed, and next moment he and I had come also to a dead halt. Before us was a great excavation, not very recent, for the sides had fallen in and grass had sprouted on the bottom. In this were the shaft of a pick broken in two and the boards of several packing cases strewn around. On one of these boards I saw, branded with a hot iron, the name Walrus, the name of Flint's ship. All was clear to probation, 
The cash had been found and rifled. The 700,000 pounds were gone. Next, I'll be reading a short story by Oscar Wilde titled The Selfish Giant. Oscar was a 19th century Irish writer who wrote plays, fiction, essays, and poetry. Every afternoon, as they were coming from school, the children used to go and play in the giant's garden. It was a large, lovely garden with soft green grass. Here and there, over the grass, stood beautiful flowers like stars, and there were twelve peach trees that in the springtime broke out into delicate blossoms of pink and pearl, and in the autumn bore rich fruit. The birds sat on the trees and sang so sweetly that the children used to stop their games in order to listen to them. How happy we are here, they cried to each other. One day the giant came back. He had been to visit his friend the Cornish ogre and had stayed with him for seven years. After the seven years were over, he had said all that he had to say, for his conversation was limited, and he determined to return to his own castle. When he arrived, he saw the children playing in the garden. "'What are you doing here?' he cried in a very gruff voice, and the children ran away. "'My own garden is my own garden,' said the giant. "'Anyone can understand that, and I will allow nobody to play in it but myself.' So he built a high wall all round it and put up a notice board. Trespassers will be prosecuted. He was a very selfish giant. The poor children had now nowhere to play. They tried to play on the road, but the road was very dusty and full of hard stones, and they did not like it. They used to wander round the high wall when their lessons were over and talk about the beautiful garden inside. How happy we were there, they said to each other. Then the spring came, and all over the country there were little blossoms and little birds. Only in the garden of the selfish giant it was still winter. The birds did not care to sing in it, as there were no children, and the trees forgot to blossom. Once a beautiful flower put its head out from the grass, but when it saw the notice board it was so sorry for the children that it slipped back into the ground again and went off to sleep. The only people who were pleased were the snow and the frost. Spring has forgotten this garden, they cried, so we will live here all year round. The snow covered up the grass with her great white cloak, and the frost painted all the trees silver. Then they invited the north wind to stay with them, and he came. He was wrapped in furs, and he roared all day about the garden and blew the chimney pots down. This is a delightful spot, he said. We must ask the hail on a visit. So the hail came. Every day for three hours he rattled on the roof of the castle till he broke most of the slates, and then he ran round and round the garden as fast as he could go. He was dressed in gray, and his breath was like ice. I cannot understand why the spring is so late in coming, said the selfish giant, as he sat at the window and looked out at his cold white garden. I hope there will be a change in the weather. 
but the spring never came, nor the summer. The autumn gave golden fruit to every garden, but to the giant's garden she gave none. He is too selfish, she said. So it was always winter there, and the north wind and the hail and the frost and the snow danced about through the trees. One morning the giant was lying awake in bed when he heard some lovely music. It sounded so sweet to his ears that he thought it must be the king's musicians passing by. It was really only a little linnet singing outside his window, but it was so long since he had heard a bird sing in his garden that it seemed to him to be the most beautiful music in the world. Then the hail stopped dancing over his head, and the north wind ceased roaring, and a delicious perfume came to him through the open casement. "'I believe the spring has come at last,' said the giant, and he jumped out of bed and looked out. What did he see? He saw the most wonderful sight. Through a little hole in the wall the children had crept in, and they were sitting in the branches of the trees. In every tree that he could see there was a little child, and the trees were so glad to have the children back again that they had covered themselves with blossoms and were waving their arms gently above the children's heads. The birds were flying about and twittering with delight, and the flowers were looking up through the green grass and laughing. It was a lovely scene, only in one corner it was still winter. It was the farthest corner of the garden, and in it was standing a little boy. He was so small that he could not reach up to the branches of the tree, and he was wandering all round it, crying bitterly. The poor tree was still quite covered with frost and snow, and the north wind was blowing and roaring above it. "'Climb up, little boy,' said the tree, and it bent its branches down as low as it could, but the little boy was too tiny. The giant's heart melted as he looked out. "'How selfish I have been,' he said." Now I know why the spring would not come here. I will put that poor little boy on the top of the tree, and then I will knock down the wall, and my garden shall be the children's playground for ever and ever. He was really very sorry for what he had done. So he crept downstairs and opened the front door quite softly and went out into the garden. But when the children saw him, they were so frightened that they all ran away and the garden became winter again. Only the little boy did not run, for his eyes were so full of tears that he did not see the giant coming. The giant stole up behind him and took him gently in his hand and put him up into the tree. And the tree broke at once into blossom and the birds came and sang on it and the little boy stretched out his two arms and flung them round the giant's neck and kissed him. And the other children, when they saw that the giant was not wicked anymore, came running back, and with them came the spring. It is your garden now, little children, said the giant, and he took a great axe and knocked down the wall. And when the people were going to market at twelve o'clock, they found the giant playing with the children in the most beautiful garden they had ever seen. All day long they played, and in the evening they came to the giant to bid him goodbye. But where is your little companion, he said, the boy I put into the tree. The giant loved him the best because he had kissed him. We don't know, answered the children. He has gone away. You must tell him to be sure and come here tomorrow, said the giant. But the children said that they did not know where he lived, 
and had never seen him before, and the giant felt very sad. Every afternoon when school was over, the children came and played with the giant, but the little boy whom the giant loved was never seen again. The giant was very kind to all the children, yet he longed for his first little friend and often spoke of him. How I would like to see him, he used to say. Years went over, and the giant grew very old and feeble. He could not play about any more, so he sat in a huge armchair and watched the children at their games and admired his garden. I have many beautiful flowers, he said, but the children are the most beautiful flowers of all. One winter morning, he looked out of his window as he was dressing. He did not hate the winter now, for he knew that it was merely the spring asleep and that the flowers were resting. Suddenly, he rubbed his eyes in wonder and looked and looked. It certainly was a marvelous sight. In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree quite covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were all golden and silver fruit hung down from them and underneath it stood the little boy he had loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy and out into the garden. He hastened across the grass and came near to the child. But when he came quite close, his face grew red with anger, and he said, Who hath dared to wound thee? For on the palms of the child's hands were the prints of two nails, and the prints of two nails were on the little feet. Who hath dared to wound thee, cried the giant. Tell me, that I may take my big sword and slay him. Nay, answered the child, but these are the wounds of love. Who art thou, said the giant, and a strange awe fell on him, and he knelt before the little child. The child smiled on the giant and said to him, you let me play once in your garden. Today you shall come with me to my garden, which is paradise. And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree, all covered with white blossoms. Here's that poem Becky warned you about that we wrote, God's Love in Symphony. Love in this life, presenting in all shapes and sizes, in graduating hues of imagined colors holding various vibrations, with sounds so piercing it hurts, and whispers so delicate and soft we must strain to listen. The softness almost disappears until every nerve stretches to hear it, to see it, to feel it, to understand it, to experience it. Love's shaping and sizing determines the extent the heart is willing to go, to trust, to grow, to labor, to persevere to yield, to wait, to hold on, and even to let go until every nerve is strained. The experience defined as painful 
yet fulfilling, even when ultimately love appears to be in vain or holds questionable purpose. Love's heartbeat is every nerve strengthened in the effort to be in rhythm with an unknown, longed for, reached for, believed in, yet out of grasp and seemingly unattainable, aloof, uncapturable substance that lives, breathes, feels, suffers, yearns, sings, cries, often just a breath away from being engulfed and lastingly embraced, eager for an encore. For those of you who are new to Let Me Tell You a Story, we occasionally read something we call Kid Chuckles. And these are taken from um, journal entries that I kept when our three children were quite small. And I just wrote down the fun and cute things that they said. So we pick a few every now and then for your enjoyment. I have four for you today, beginning with three-year-old Brady, who said, I don't believe in God, and I'm mad at Jesus, and I'm going to shoot the devil with a squirt gun. (laughs) (laughs) And um, uh, one day when I asked Brady to please shut the bathroom door, he said, Do you want privacy, Mom? (laughs) Uh, let's see, I was driving with both of our boys in the car, and Brady got into my purse and applied chopstick to his lips. Toby, his five-year-old brother, said, no, Brady, it's chipstick. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, let's see, the final one, uh, a fire truck passed by the house, and Brady said, that noise hurts my bottom. It scares my bottom. So who knows uh, why he used <laughs> that terminology, but his older, wiser brother said, these things happen, Brady. <laughs> so, so that's it for now, and um, stay tuned, and we'll occasionally read a few more. And with that, we're going to chuckle right out of here this time. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.